0: Jesus is going to be confronted by his family. Jesus is going to be confronted by the Pharisees um, in this last little passage. So let's jump into it, and we'll, we'll read it in the round. Somebody want to start us off in uh, verse 20? Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not able, even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. Said, he is out of his mind. <laughs> and the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by love, or something like that. That's right. You got that. Uh, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Sir. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, a house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, and his end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. And he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven of for all their sins for every sign of they are. But whoever blasphemes. Was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside the room. Who are my mother and my brothers? He yeah. asked. Then he looked at those at the seated in the circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will, my brother and sister and mother. All right, real quick, as we just kind of read that, what stands out to you in that passage? What's the thing that jumps off the page? The unforgivable sin on himself. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the big one, right? That's kind of the elephant in the passage of like, <gasps> <laughs> anything else? I mean, I just, I love that his family is like, yeah, he's out of his mind. Mm-hmm. Anything else? What's up, Jay Fresh? Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. Jesus is dealing with his family and the Pharisees. Families come to take charge of him because they say he's out of his mind. And then the Pharisees come down from Jerusalem and they say, you're possessed by Satan, by Beelzebub. And then Jesus begins to speak to them. And then his family comes and he says, uh, my family are those seated around me who do God's will. So um, the, 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 the sandwich technique that Mark actually employs, I know maybe you guys, I said sandwich and you're starting like, oh man, when's lunch? Is lunch coming up? Is um, he, Mark will use this kind of, and again, remember in a culture that, I mean, what is it, 90% of people are illiterate? They can't read, right? So you, as, you, as an author, you're always trying to incorporate ways that helps your audience remember the stories, the narratives, what's happening. So Mark's going to use this sandwich technique. As a matter of fact, we kind of saw something similar in those conflict narratives to where there was all those, those similar patterns that would happen, right? So this, this kind of writing style, this technique... Um, helps people remember, helps people engage in the text, where he begins by the family's, you know, again, he's out of his mind, right? And then the Pharisees kind of come and say he's possessed by Satan, and then that he kind of deals with the family. But the the kind of main point of this passage, I would say, is this, is is allegiance to Jesus, is fidelity to Jesus, right? And I would say that we need to really kind of consider this as a startling um, a, a really a sobering reminder, you know, 2,000 years ago, and I, I, I did a little Google, from here to where Jesus would have been is about 7,500 miles, right? So, we are so far removed from, from Jesus, not only um, geographically, where he was, but also um, chronologically, the time, but proximity to Jesus, it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter how close you were to him, it doesn't matter... How um, near you were to him—that was never enough. What matters to Jesus is your allegiance, right? And this, this has always been the call of Christianity: is what or who or what are you going to give your loyalty to, right? Who are you going to give your fidelity to? Who are you going to give your time and your effort and your energy? And here, Jesus is contrasting himself. Right? He's setting himself against what we can what, I mean when we think about the family, right? When we think about religious institutions, Jesus is really in some sense is contrasting himself against that and saying, I am more worthy of your allegiance. I am more worthy of your loyalty. I am more worthy of your fidelity than even these, these good, wonderful, worthy, respectable things, family, religious institutions. Right, Jesus is saying, I am the one that deserves your allegiance. Right? I am the one. So we'll talk about these the way that he does this. We're going to talk about the family, and then we're going to talk about um, the Pharisees. Um, and so to talk about the family, I took my girls last night to go see the new Little Mermaid. Last night? What's today, Saturday? Friday night. We went and saw on the opening, opening night the new Little Mermaid. I don't know, have you, I mean, there is just like an energy in a movie theater with a bunch of children that, that you don't experience as, like, you know, an adult, you go to a movie theater, everybody just sits there and maybe hear a little popcorn crunching, but kids were cheering and singing along, and I was clapping, and I was dancing in the aisles, I was having, like, I had a great time at the movie theaters, even though, like, that's so dumb, it's so, like, it's just, I could care less about it, but just the energy in the movie theater was wonderful, but anyway, it, it was kind of it was kind of serendipitous because I've been thinking about family in terms of, of movies, right? And again, the way that movies are portrayed. Johnny, you see some of these movies? Tell me which ones you see. Which movies do you see in there, Johnny? Cartoons? Yeah. You know, yeah. When we think about, okay, so here, here's the ones that for, for some reason came to mind. There's a lot of these Disney movies, especially like Little Mermaid, right? The kind of concept here with with these movies is you would depart from your family, right? And you would kind of go follow your heart. You would embrace your individualism. You would kind of express yourself, right? This is kind of what happens in a lot of these Disney movies, right? Um, Cinderella breaks away from her evil stepmother family situation. Um, again, Ariel breaks away from her oppressive, mean father um, you know, the whole Aladdin, you know, you're supposed to marry within the family. Everybody kind of breaks away. And this is these are the themes and the patterns that we teach our children or that are instilled in our children because our children watch these things again and again and again. And then you maybe move into some of these teenage movies again. You see a lot of these similar themes in, in Marvel Um, Star Wars, right, even some of these themes. Now, I'm trying to, I was struggling a little bit because like this was the movie references that I came up with, but I know that there's somebody in here that's just like, I don't watch any of this nonsense. I don't know if there's Hallmark movies that might embrace this theme, but here is a list of the Hallmark films that maybe you could consider and think about, you know. But this concept, this idea, right, with family is that you have um, the, the normative thinking with, especially today, right, and as epitomized in a lot of these films, is that somehow the family system is oppressive, right, or the, not maybe not oppressive, but at some point, you need to kind of realize your full individual potential apart from your family. You got to go follow your heart, right? This is the normative thinking. Anybody disagree with that, right? We're on the same page, kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so... What's interesting, though, and here's why I want to show this, because I want to contrast it, and then I want to show how it applies to Jesus. I'm going somewhere with this, right? Imagine we began seeing these films in light of kind of ancient Near Eastern, in light of the norms of Jesus' day, right? Where it, what the family wasn't the oppressive system. The family was the normative system. The family was the only way you could realize your full individual potential was within the family system. Right, So if we were to take these kind of famous films and insert them into the ancient Near East and you go see a, a film in the first century with Jesus, you can go to the movies, right? Here's, here's kind of my, my silly, like Cinderella just ends up living at home with her stepmother and her sisters and she just fulfills her family duty, right? Prince Charming just marries someone to strengthen the family empire. Maybe if you watch The Little Mermaid, she would never leave the sea, She would heed her father's advice to avoid those evil, wicked land creatures, right? Frozen, which is, again, she conceals her powers to protect her family and younger sister. Um, My favorite example that I just creatively, (laughs) when Luke finds out that Darth Vader is his father, of course Luke would join the Empire as an act of fidelity to his dad and maintain the lineage, right? Right? if you were to insert a lot of those themes back into the first century, right, this are the kind of films we would watch. Which is why when Jesus kind of rebuts that system, right, when he refuses, when his family comes to take charge of him, right, and he responds by saying, "Uh uh-uh, like these people are not my family, right? I have a greater purpose. Like you get like this kind of, Almost, you know, like, Jesus is the you know, that's, I'm not going to say he's the little mermaid. But you get these themes of, like, Jesus is coming to say, like, this whole system, this family system, it's, it's not the same. Um, because, again, what was generally accepted as appropriate, what was, what was normative thinking, what was culturally proper, was that Jesus' family would take charge of him, right? Jesus would submit to the family. He would yield to the family, not override him. Right? And so, in a lot of senses here, right, I think I have a slide for this, right, is is Jesus, again, they they would. He would yield to the family. He would never override them. Right? Um, So, in a lot of senses, what Jesus is doing here is he is redefining family. Right? He really is. I remember teaching on this years and years and years ago with Junior high kids. And as a junior high kid, normally you're kind of embarrassed at your family and your parents are a little bit awkward. And this kind of concept of having a spiritual family is like so wonderful. Um, So Jesus is redefining family. One of this, uh, you know, kind of an old scholar, uh, he said it like this in his book, The Life of Jesus. He, He said that Jesus cared little for the relations of kinship. His attitude was a bold revolt against the nature which trampled trampled everything, or I'm sorry, which trampled underfoot everything that is human blood, love, and country, right? And in some senses, you read Jesus and you think about his words. Who's my family, right? And again, to say that in the first century, right? Nobody said that in the first century. Your family was your family, right? Jesus would say things like, Jesus would say things like, you know, when somebody says, Hey, Jesus, I want to follow you, but let me go bury my dad first, right? Everybody remember this passage? Let the dead bury the dead. You come follow me, which is like Jesus, like he's just wanting to go say goodbye to his father, right? Um, in Luke 11, in this same passage, the way, that it's, it, the way that Luke tells the story, somebody says to Jesus, she, uh, the person says, Blessed is the mother who nursed you, right? And you know Jesus' response to that? It's not a great Mother's Day sermon, right? The, the, the lady goes, blessed is the mother who's, who, who nursed you. And you know, you'd think Jesus would be sentimental and gracious about it. And he's kind of like, eh, whatever. You know who's blessed? People who hear my word and obey it, right? Imagine on that on Mother's Day. Blessed is the mother who nursed you. Nah, it's not really that great of a thing. You want to know what's blessed? Hear my word and obey it. And so Jesus, in a lot of sense, you see him um, redefining family, reestablishing the norms of family relationship, right? But what's interesting is to take this one side of view isn't the full full picture. One of the things that Jesus often does throughout the scriptures, too, is he reinforces the family, right? He really strengthens the family. In chapter (coughs) 5, Um, we'll, and what will get to all these narratives, is he's going to heal uh, a man who is possessed by demons, a demoniac. And what he does at the end of that chapter, he says, I want you to go home to your family and I want you to tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you, right? And th- this is the guy who's in the tombs and he would cut himself with stones and he's possessed by the legion of demons and Jesus heals him. He says, I want you to go back to your family. I want you to be reconciled back to your family, right? In chapter 7, um, he, he chastises the Pharisees for not taking care of their family and circumventing money from their parents for the church. It was a lack of honor for mother and father, right? Um, they'd have these traditions that said, you know, normally if you were a child you would help support your parents especially as they got older in age and these children, these Pharisees and, and they would say, oh no, no, we're not going to help support mom and dad. We're going to use this money for the church, right? And Jesus, Jesus chastises them for that, right? In chapter 10, he condemns divorce and upholds marriage, upholds the family as God's original design. So you have these two contrasting um, and competing frames of reference. In one sense, he's reestablishing family. He's redefining family. In some senses, he's reinforcing family. Um, And what you have to do is you kind of have to figure out when to do what. That's what wisdom is, right? That's the wisdom that we ask for from the Spirit. God, when, when is it an appropriate time in my life that I need to really turn my eyes to you? And again, at one point, Jesus says, if you don't hate your father or mother or brother or sisters, you have no place in my kingdom. When is that an appropriate time for you to make that choice? Right? When is it an appropriate time for me to be reconciled to my family, to honor my mother and father, to to really strengthen the family. Some people come to this passage, right? I like how um, David Garland put in his commentary. He says, if you're selfishly looking for how to make our nuclear families happier and more secure, you're not going to find it here, right? But if you're looking for God's grander purpose for the family, we'll find good news. And then he says this, I love this, particularly for those who, for whatever reasons, are alone and without family, right? So as Jesus is talking about family here and as we understand family, again, you have to understand the full narrative of scripture where at some point he's redefining family and he's saying like, this is what you have to do. You have to forsake your mother and father. You have to leave them behind. People who do my will are, are my brothers and sisters and mother. And at some point, Jesus is going to, um, he's going to reinforce the family. And you just have to use the wisdom, the guidance of the spirit, which is so important to figure out which one is which. All right? So, Jesus with the family. Now, Jesus with the Pharisees. And <clears throat> the, the two kind of sections in here is, I think Jesus gives us two things. He's going to give us a little, I think like a little, I, I liked it as a little primer or a little, um, It was helpful for me to see this and how Jesus deals with conflict and almost utilize that in some senses of my life. Jesus is dealing with conflict. And then again, Jolin, the big elephant in the text. Dun, dun, dun. Have I committed the unpardonable and eternal sin, right? That eternal sin. So the Pharisees, by the way, are coming up. So here's Jerusalem down here, right? So they're coming up to the Sea of Galilee, Right? Because they need to go accuse Jesus of doing what? Man, this guy Jesus is out of line. Whatever this guy Jesus has done, he needs to be dealt with. By the way, it's about 80 miles, right? It's about 80 miles from, from Jerusalem all the way up to the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum area. So I don't know how they traveled. I don't know if they walked. I don't know if they rode a horse. I don't know if they rode um, donkeys or what they rode. That's that's a pretty serious undertaking in that day to go to. I mean, I don't know if I would drive 80 miles today, you know, to go. But they make this journey. They have come all the way from Jerusalem, right, to accuse Jesus, to condemn Jesus, right? So as they do this, they they call him the Prince of Demons, right? They call him the Prince of Demons. And Jesus, he's going to respond with this, I would say, like a three-layered approach. And I think it's helpful as we try and deal with conflict in our lives. Maybe you have some conflict going on, and you want to try some of this uh, three-layered approach with with dealing with conflict. So the first thing that Jesus does is he tries with some simple common sense. (coughs) <coughs> Will you guys give me one second? I'm going to go. I'm going to go call for a second. I think I need something for my throat, too. <coughs> Just talk a minute amongst yourselves. Say hi. some of that coffee what's up boy what's up? man i had a little bit of, like a cough this week and i thought i was gonna make it through but <sighs> all right all right so sorry. He's no he's fine you. he's not he's fine don't worry about that no more, yes,
1: no more just, just needed a little halftime break thanks that's good, that's good?
0: Okay. <laughs> All right, let's try that. I think I can make it through to the end. Sorry about that, y'all. First thing Jesus does when he deals with his Pharisees, right? They say, hey, he's possessed by Satan. And he just he just tries some simple common sense, right? And, and the common sense, the argumentation goes like this. If you were a general in a battle, right, you would recognize, right, if you were a general in a battle, you would never use your own forces to flank your own army, right? A general in a battle would never divide his 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 forces, his army, in order to conquer an enemy, you know, say, hey, let me have this half of the enemy come battle this half of the enemy so we can go conquer this enemy, right? The United States, when, when were we at, when was the United States at its weakest moment? During what period? Snapped you back into Civil War. Civil War. Yeah, right? We were 100% at its weakest in the Civil War when we were fighting against each other. Jesus really just starts off with this real simple bit of common sense. Where he says, you're coming up here because you recognize that I'm driving out demons. Like, this has been documented. People are talking about this, and I'm doing it. People are witnessing this. Driving out demons is liberating, it's healing, it's restoring, right? And if I'm using the power of Satan, right, Satan's power is to enslave to destroy, to kill. So I'm liberating, healing, and restoring, and I'm using the power of killing, destroying, and healing, right? So Jesus starts off with a lot of bit of common sense. Sometimes as we're in conflict, you know, again, trying to maybe just kind of employ a little bit of common sense into whatever argument you're you're kind of in the midst of, or whatever conflict, during the midst of, like here's just some some simple common sense. This is where Jesus starts, and it's probably really helpful for us to start there. A lot of times we kind of start off in the emotional sense, right? We get all fired up, and we're ready to fight and battle, and make ridiculous arguments. Um, I've been I've thought about this example for so long. One time, my wife and I were were fighting, um, and I got emotional about it, and uh, we were fighting, you know raise your hand if you've ever had the argument about like who's doing more in the house you know what I mean like who's like really kind of pulling their weight and you know in my mind of course you know the martyr of the household Eric Williams just doing everything and I got mad at my wife and you know at at the moment you just get emotional and you just start saying things that are like really 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 I, I said to her I said to her you know I'm furiously like kind of banging dishes, washing dishes, like you know, showing her like, hey, I'm doing all the dishes. You know how you do, right? I set the dishes there. I'm like, the dishes aren't just gonna dry themselves, which I thought about as just like You know, like if they just sat there, <laughs> they would just dry themselves. <laughs> you know what I mean? But you start off with because you just get so wrapped up emotionally in whatever argument conflict you you are in. That you, feel, that you fail a lot of times. I love this about Jesus. He just starts off here with just some common sense, right? He's trying to reason with them just to say, hey, here's, here's a little bit of common sense. Let me just show you how this works, right? Yeah, that's just like one of those ones. I still just, I'll wash dishes and I'll send them over there. And I'll just think to myself often, like the dishes aren't just going to dry themselves as they're just sitting there trying themselves. Um, so... <laughs> So, common sense, I, I love it, and Jesus just starts off there like here's here's just some common sense. The next thing um, is he he begins then with a parable, right a story, an allegory. He tells a story you know um how how could a strong like how are you ever going to be able to rob a strong man's house unless you first tie up the strong man the The strong man here is Satan, the house would be the world, and there's all sorts of kind of Jewish references, Old Testament in the book of Isaiah. We won't get into all that, but there's all sorts of references here um, that the that the Jews would have understood. But we have to consider two things as he tells this parable. And again, um, Jesus is is recognizing Satan as strong. Right? We often don't do that. Right? We think about Satan as maybe a little pitchfork character. You know, he's kind of wimpy or whatever. Jesus is recognizing him as one who has strength, right? Um and he 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 um he warns here again of our adversary as somebody who is strong enough in some senses to have possession of this world. But one of the one of the I mean this You know, we kind of read this passage and we get so obsessed with the eternal sin part and we miss this, right? Satan is strong and and Jesus, and he has like the strength that he, in some senses, he's possessing the world. But Jesus in this passage, think of the claim that he's making, right? That he's actually stronger than him. That Jesus is the one that can go into this man's house and tie him up. To subdue him, to plunder his house, to leave him with nothing right? Th- that passage again, Jesus says, um, let me go to that one uh, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up, then he can plunder the strong man's house right Jesus is the one. And again, I, I always think about this passage too, and I kind of took this, these two little sentences again. You know, you have to pause and consider the reality of evil that's around us, right? Think about the reality of the evil that is around us, that we see on the news, that we see in this world. Think about the scope of evil that's kind of happened throughout human history, And think about the strength of that evil in our world. Think about somebody strong enough to overcome all of it. Who says, I have the might, I have the knowledge, and I will overcome all of the strength of this evil. And Jesus will do this, and Jesus does this, right? No one enters a strong man's house without Jesus. says, I am going to tie up this strong man and we are going to rob and plunder, and we are going to leave him with nothing. Right? That is the claim of Jesus in this passage. Now, you either have to say that Jesus was completely out of his mind to make this statement, or he had some real confidence and belief and some knowledge and really was who he said he was. Right? So, he begins, and again for us, as we kind of think about personally dealing with conflict, Jesus gives some common sense. Jesus gives a parable, a story, an allegory. Maybe at some point, you know, if the common sense isn't breaking through, you know, maybe you tell a story of how dishes sit there. There once was a wonderful dish who sat on the side, right? Um, And how dishes, um, maybe that's helpful for you as you think about um, dealing with conflict. And Jesus ends with a really solemn warning, right? In this passage. He says, I tell you the truth. He says, I tell you the truth, right? This is a way of, verily, verily, I tell unto you. This is the exclamation point. This is the double exclamation point. I tell you the truth. Um, and this solemn warning, he talks about the, this, you know, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven to them, right? The unlimited, unequaled, unparalleled forgiveness of Jesus. All the sins will be forgiven them. And he says this, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, for he is guilty of the eternal sin. Right? Um, I remember. I'm going to end by. By this is quite a long quote. It's actually a little bit of a section of a book. I remember reading this book by a guy named uh, Ronald Rohlheiser. This is, I think, from 2003, so about 20 years ago. Um, and I remember reading his um, this this in, his interpretation on this passage. Um, which I, I've it's just one of those when somebody kind of phrases the passage or a section of a passage or illuminates a passage in such a way, it's just stuck with me, like one of those things that's really stuck with me over the past 20 years. So I'm going to read this section, but at the same time, I'm going I'm to put it up on the um, screen because I know that it's helpful. Um, it's helpful to, to see it and kind of not only hear it, but be able to read it alongside. So um, from Ronald Rolheiser, and again, if you want a book, if you're looking for a book, The Holy Longing, phenomenal book. Um, this is Rollheiser's interpretation, of this unforgivable sin against the Holy Spirit. Um, he says this, he says, to understand what Jesus is teaching here, it's necessary to put his statement about this unforgivable sin within the context in which it was spoken. Jesus had just performed a miracle—the exorcism of a demon. Um, we see him doing this in Mark. You see it specifically in Matthew and Luke, where he does just exorcise a demon, right? And then they come to him, right? In Jewish theology of the time, to which the scribes and the Pharisees and everyone else adhered, the belief was that only someone who came from God could perform that type of miracle. The scribes and the Pharisees had just witnessed this miracle, and all the evidence therefore pointed the fact uh, that Jesus was from God. Common sense. But in, their jealousy of the, but in their jealousy of him, the scribes and the Pharisees could not admit the truth that they had just the, seen. Here's this. They chose to lie. Right? They chose to lie. Hence, instead of admitting what they had just seen, or what they had just witnessed, they deny what they know and accuse Jesus of working miracles by the power of Satan. At first, Jesus tries to reason with them, using common sense, pointing out it wouldn't make much strategic sense for Satan to be working against himself, but they remain obstinate, choosing to deny the obvious rather than admit their weakness. Finally, Jesus issues a warning, a strong, solemn warning for That's what it is, merely a warning, not a statement that they have committed an unforgivable sin, which, unpackaged and paraphrased, might sound like this. And again, this is what I've kind of starred, highlighted, loved about Rollheiser's interpretation on this passage. He says it like this. He says, um, says, be careful not to lie, not to distort the truth. Because the real danger is that by lying, you begin to distort and warp your own hearts. If you lie to yourself long enough, eventually you will lose sight of the truth and believe the lie and become unable any longer to tell the difference between truth and lies. Rollheiser says, What becomes unforgivable about that is not that God does not want to forgive, but that you no longer want to be forgiven. God easily forgives all your weaknesses. And will always forgive anyone who wants to be forgiven. He says, But you can so warp your own conscience that you see God's truth and forgiveness itself as a lie, as Satan. And you see your own lie and truth as forgiveness. That is the only sin that truly puts us outside of God's mercy. Not because God refuses to extend mercy further, but because you can look mercy in the eye and call it a lie, right? And I wish I could go on in this, in this passage because he then really talks about being honest. And he talks about being honest with ourselves and what honesty does. Um, uh, and he, he talks at one point, he's talking another kind of highlight that I has. He talks about, you know, kind of people in recovery. And he says sobriety is 10% about alcohol right, or fill in the blank, he says sobriety is 10% about alcohol, and it's 90% about honesty, right, and so Rollheiser kind of begins to talk about, you know, you can look mercy into the eye and call it a lie, right, and then he begins to talk about about alcohol, um, or sorry, about sobriety, telling the truth. Um, so I think that's about enough for this morning. Again, I'll end with kind of Rollheiser's quote, This was just one of those passages, you know, Jesus says, be careful not to lie, right? Not to distort that truth. You can eventually continue to lie, to distort, to warp, because you can even do that to the point where you would look God's mercy in the eye and you would call it a lie. That's the unforgivable sin. So let's end there. Let's do a little bit of discussion. Um, And, you know, reflect on that kind of opening statement, proximity to Jesus is not enough. Allegiance to Jesus is what matters. Do you think Jesus is calling you, again, in that wisdom, maybe in a stage of your life, to either redefine or, or reinforce family dynamics? Um, did I spell that right, reinforce? I-N? Yeah, reinforce. We're not actually... In, okay, I might, I might need to change that because that could bother me. Um, can you think of a situation where you know, either common sense, parable, warnings might be helpful in, in dealing with a conflict? Um, and, and where do you see the culture? I wanted to put both the culture and church here, right? Cause it's, sometimes it's easy to look at the culture and say, Oh, you liars. You know, Jesus is dealing with religious folks here in this passage. Where can you even see the church making that choice to lie? Kind of being able to look mercy into the eye and, and, and choosing to lie. So, um, Take a minute or two if you got to move up and and get close to somebody, to do that, and then um, we'll have a little bit of discussion, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. <laughs> like that, right? Reinforce? Is there a hyphen in there? That looks weird, doesn't it? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah? Yeah, I feel like at one point like I was typing it out and I got the squiggly red line under it. And then I was like and then maybe I just and then I just kinda did